In the name of Jesus, amen. Dear saints, at a wedding in Cana, Jesus turned water into wine. And one of the things to note is how many details that John provides in just 11 verses. He tells us the day it happened, uh, the conversation between Jesus and Mary, the number of stone jars or water pots, how much water they held, uh, what they were for. He tells us who knew what, who didn't know something. He, knew, uh, he said that the servants knew some things, that the master didn't know anything that the disciples saw the whole thing happen before their eyes. He tells us what the conversation was that followed. The conversation between Jesus and Mary, the conversation between the servants uh, and, and the master and the bridegroom. And he even tells us how the wine tasted. And it's all really very detailed. <clears throat> so the question is, why does John provide so many details here today. Uh, in years past, I focused on some of the details of this account, the very words of Mary, the words of Jesus, the hour of Jesus, what that means, the significance of this miracle, the timing, all that sort of stuff. But uh, today I'm going to preach on something different here today, kind of a bird's eye view of the whole thing. And it's really the only point I'm going to make and develop in the sermon. And it's this. That the reason John provides so many details in this account was because he was actually there. This miracle actually happened before his very eyes. That's it. Now, I, I know that you th may think that this is a very obvious and elementary point, and maybe so, but we need to be reminded of this every so often. Jesus a, was a real man. And he really did go to a wedding between a man and a woman in a real town called Cana, which in fact did exist. And at this wedding, they really ran out of wine and Jesus really did turn water into wine. About 140 gallons or so in an instant just by speaking. And that is my point for today, that this event, everything in it really happened. The Bible, first and foremost, is not a spiritual book. It's not. It teaches on the things of the Spirit, that is true, and so on. But that is not what it mainly is, or primarily is. The Bible is chiefly a history book, a book of history. It's not a book that simply teaches us some spiritual truths or principles or holy philosophies and rules and insight. The Bible is a record of historical events, historical accounts, a document that chronicles events that took place in this world. To my knowledge, now you could correct me if I, I'm wrong, I don't, I don't know, but to my knowledge, the Bible is the only holy book that is printed and published with maps in it. 
Every other religion apart from Christianity began with one person seeing one thing in one place at one time and nobody else was there. It was an isolated or private event. They're hidden uh, visions or dreams or things like this that happen in the middle of nowhere in the wilderness. But the scriptures uh, speak of things that took place in geographical places with real eyewitnesses in public before other people, those who believed in him and those who didn't believe in him, those who uh, 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 trusted him and those who rejected him, that the same events were portrayed before all, that Jesus' miracles were public, his words were public, his interactions, his condemnation before Pontius Pilate was public, his death and his resurrection was public, and the maps show you exactly where those things took place. You can point to it on the map. And that there were people living there. And that's because the Bible tells us of things that actually happened. <clears throat> now, the reason I'm, I'm saying this today is to warn you of some of the dangerous teachings going on in the world now. Uh, for about the past 170 years or so, there's been a movement that started out very small but has grown through the years. And it is a movement, uh, an attempt to reverse this basic and central affirmation that the Bible is history, that the events actually took place. Now, instead, uh, they've taught that the Bible is historically unreliable. So they'll say something like, look, we can't really know or trust if these things actually happened the way they're written or not. So uh, they'll conclude, the important thing about the Bible is not what it says, but what it means. For them, the Bible is chiefly a spiritual book that has spiritual meaning, and so they seek the spiritual implication of the text apart from the historical facts, apart from the event itself. For instance, they'll look at a text like we, the one we have today, John chapter 2, Jesus turning water to wine, and they'll say something like, well, look, we know obviously, water doesn't just turn into wine. We're much more advanced now today. I mean, we have iPhones, we have the internet, we have all these sort of things. Uh, we have science. Just to comment here, this is ridiculous because they back then had science too. And they knew that water doesn't turn into wine. This is why they were so astonished at it. This is why it's recorded, because it was extraordinary. Uh, you don't just record water continuing to be water. So this was an extraordinary event. But they'll, they'll say something like, well, and so, look, we're a lot more reasonable now. We're rational. We went through the Enlightenment period. We, we, we're smart. And so we know that water doesn't turn into wine. They, they might have. So what John is actually doing here is presenting to us a spiritual truth and message. And it's something like that Jesus... Uh, brings gladness in the midst of trouble. And that's the real moral of the story here. The event doesn't matter if it took place or not. The real thing is that uh, God gives us gladness in the midst of trouble, or he provides. Now, they don't care about the history of the text. They, what they want to do is they have the Bible, and they want to get behind it. They want to get deeper into it, uh, but away from the words. So they want to get behind it and find out what it really means. They want to find out the real truth buried beneath it. So the details don't matter. The meaning does, they'll say. And the point is, they'll do this not only with Jesus turning water into wine, but with the rest of the miracles too. They will explain away the history of the event 
and try to find a moral of the story behind it. The feeding of the 5,000, I I know you've heard me speak on this before, but the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus feeds 5,000 people with only five loaves of bread and two fish, and they'll say something like, well, uh, that, that didn't happen. We know better. Those things, sort of things are impossible. The point of the text isn't the miracle, it's the message behind it. And so what really happened wasn't that Jesus fed 5,000 people with a few pieces of bread. What really happened was that the little boy who offered the five loaves of bread to Jesus moved everybody to start sharing with one another. And so it's a story about sharing, about generosity. And that's the point, right? That's the message. Or they'll take Jesus walking on water and say, look, that doesn't happen. We know physics. We know the laws of buoyancy. We know how that works. So what happened was that Jesus is walking on a sandbar and and it just appears that he's walking on the water, but it's pretty shallow there. And uh, but the disciples didn't know any better. And they'll just go on and on and do this with every part of Scripture, anything that is supernatural or extraordinary, anything that the Lord himself does, they simply explain away. And they do this with the Old Testament to the new. And even to the death of Jesus, they will say something like that when Jesus died on the cross, he wasn't suffering the wrath of God or being condemned in our place. Uh, In fact, he was just demonstrating how much God already loves us. Nothing actually happens there. It's nothing more than an example or an object lesson. Uh, Just God already loved us. And the death of Christ really wasn't that necessary. It didn't change anything. And they'll even do this with the resurrection of Jesus. And they'll say that Easter isn't about Jesus physically rising from the dead, but it's that he spiritually rose from the dead and that he now lives on in our hearts, right? Isn't that nice? That's the whole point of it. That's the message of Easter. So they view the Bible as one big parable or myth or fable, and it is up to you to find the deeper meaning, to to dig deep and find the true meaning of the text. It's hidden beneath all these details. Now, I want you to be able to name this thing, this idea, everything I've been talking about, this teaching, discarding the history and the events of the Bible in search for, for another or spiritual meaning of it. This is called higher criticism. That is the term, higher criticism. That is the term. It's in the name. You stand above the Bible, you're higher than it, and you're looking down and you're critiquing what the Bible says through your reason and saying, this doesn't make sense, so therefore this doesn't go. And this is the teaching that really spread, uh, spread around very quickly in the middle of the 19th century. Uh, there were uh, uh, little instances of it before, but it starts to spread then. And our own church body, the Lutheran Church, Missouri said, was deeply affected by this in the 60s and the 70s, in the 1960s and the 1970s. In fact, a, a number of you have heard this. If you haven't talked to me after the service, I could tell you more about it. But there was an event at the St. Louis Seminary where pastors are uh, trained and formed. Uh, there was a walkout, and this was titled or called Seminex, I mean, the Seminary in Exile. And what happened was, this was our own Lutheran seminary, that the higher critics, the ones who believed this about the Bible, walked out of the seminary 
and those who believed what the Bible said remained. And there was that split. And this then, a number of years later, this is then what gives birth to the ELCA, the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America, that those who walked out formed that synod, that denomination. Uh, Nowadays, I I just want to go through this. Nowadays, you'll see on the news uh, something about the Lutheran Church. And the majority of the time, they're talking about the ELCA. And you'll see the ELCA on the news and the internet making headlines for ordaining uh, something like the first woman pastor, ordaining the first openly homosexual pastor, or the first transgender bishop, which happened not too long ago. You see them defend and support and even pay for the aberrant practice of abortion. This synod, the ELCA. They have women preach and read the lessons and distribute Holy Communion. Uh, This same synod will marry homosexual couples in the church. They have accepted cohabitation that is living together without marriage and said that it is not a sin to be corrected or rebuked. They fully adopted critical race theory. Uh, They have blessings for pets and animals. They practice open communion. In 2019, in their synod convention, the pastors that are voted to say that Jesus is not the only way to the Father. They voted officially and said that there is more than one way to salvation apart from Christ. There's more. I I don't have time for it now. But all of these things, my point is all of these things are only symptoms of the problem. Because the real heart of the matter, the root of the issue, the thing that started it all was not any of these things. It was higher criticism. That's what started it. Uh, It is their view of the Bible. They would say that the Bible isn't the word of God, but that that it simply contains the word of God. And the, the job of the church, the job of the pastor, the theologian is to help you find out which parts of the Bible are the word of God and which aren't. Which, which is applicable, ac- applicable and which isn't. What is true and what isn't true. And <clears throat> so when you do that, they started to uh, embrace all of these sins and atrocities simply by denying the historicity of the scriptures. And uh, that's the point. It, but the point is, is that it's not simply the ELCA. It's all mainline liberal Protestant denominations have fallen into this poison um, the Presbyterian, the PC, uh, uh, Presbyterian Church, uh, PC USA, the Methodists, the Anglicans, and so on. Uh, this even affects some of our own Lutheran churches here in Florida to this day in the LCMS. Some of our own Lutheran churches here have adopted this view of the scriptures. <clears throat> they would say the history and the events are not the main point. However, When you read the Bible on its own terms, the history is everything. The events that the Bible speaks of actually took place. They are real people, real events, real words. And because these events really took place, then the meaning of these events are real and true. There is a real spiritual significance for the miracles of Jesus but only because the miracles actually took place, only because Jesus actually is who he said he is. 
That is the Son of God, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father. And this is the position of confessional Lutherans. That is what we believe, teach, and confess here publicly and privately. The scriptures are inerrant. They're infallible. They are true. That is our starting point. And it won't change. Uh, and, and this, again, I'm preaching to the choir. You all should know this. If you're a member of this congregation, this little congregation here in Winter Garden, then it's because you have made that same confession when you became a member here. You stood here before the congregation and I asked you, I said, do you hold all the prophetic and apostolic scriptures to be the inspired and infallible word of God? And you said, I do. Now, all of that is true, but I want to make a point here and say this, that the Bible was true even before you believed it was true. Your faith doesn't make it true. It was already true. These events really happened already. Everything the Bible says is already history. It has been written down and it's already done and accomplished before you heard it. Jesus turned water into wine long before you were born. This already took place some 2,000 years ago and has shaped the world through that. John was an eyewitness. He saw it with his own eyes. He and the other disciples saw it with their own eyes. John chapter 2, 11 says this, the first of his signs, the first of his miracles, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested or epiphanied his glory And his disciples believed in him. And I would argue that the reason John remembers all of these details, all of the uh, intricate things about that day, is because this was the moment of his own conversion. This is the moment he first believed in the Lord Jesus. That he saw something that day that he will never see again. He saw God in the flesh turn water to wine before his very eyes. Something impossible. And as great as that was, John saw something far greater than that miracle that day. The greatest moment for him was not when he saw Jesus turn water into wine, but it was the moment when he saw Jesus turn the wrath of God away from us all forever on the cross. It was the moment when Christ gave up his final breath on the cross that John was an eyewitness to as well. He saw the same Jesus who healed many, who provided for people, who resurrected others from the dead, who comforted the poor and the lowly. He saw that he was really God, that Christ manifested himself to them. And he saw that same Christ, that same Jesus, that same God beaten down and die on a cross for us. And what he wrote is true. Whether you knew about it or not, whether you learned some special lesson from it or not, it was already true. So you don't need to learn the moral of the story for it to accomplish something. Jesus, Jesus was accomplishing something for you apart from you. Apart from your existence, he was accomplishing something for you. Jesus was really fulfilling and accomplishing and doing something for you on the cross. He really stood before Pontius Pilate. He really was beaten and flogged. He really wore a crown of thorns that pierced his brow. People really spit upon his face. They stripped him of his clothes. He was really hammered in his nails and his feet to a 
to a cross. And he really bore your sins and died on the cross because he was making a real payment for your sins. In Galatians 3, Paul says, it was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. It's not some private or secret event. Just as his death is written into history, so is his resurrection. And he really resurrected from the grave, from the tomb that day. And that tomb is empty and it always will be. The death and resurrection of Jesus is a historical fact. It is true. And that is the foundation of your salvation, what it is built upon. If you take away the history here, you take away everything. You lose it all. Paul says, if Christ has not been raised from the dead, then we are to be pitied above all men. If you lose the event, you lose it all. But the history is everything. And the history shows us that there is an actual God who took on actual flesh and blood, who really did lay down his life for you. And all of your sins were really forgiven by Christ, your dear Lord. And he forgave them in an actual place, on an actual day, once and for all. And because he really died for you, he has really forgiven you. That your forgiveness is etched into and engraved into history forever. Dear saints, what Holy Scripture says is true. What it says about Jesus is true. What it says about you is true. The things he did are true. And everything it means is true. I want to close with these words uh, from St. John in the same gospel. St. John the Apostle who saw Jesus turn water to wine, who sat next to him at the Lord's Supper, who saw him crucified in his final moment. Listen to what he says at the end of his gospel. He says this. Jesus did many other miracles in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, sanctify us in the truth. Your word is truth. Amen. The peace of God which surpasses all understanding. Guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen.